Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 2 and chapter 5. Hear the very word of God. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives, also Ananom of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron, and the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you have showed this loyalty to Saul, our Lord, and buried him. Now, many, now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mananaim, and made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Picking up in chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You must know what's coming. Uh, so any of the boys and girls who signed up for Story Keepers can head out there. Miss Tara will be there waiting to meet you. Let me uh, let me pray, and then we'll look at the passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, Old and New Testament the different genres of your word and for how they teach us differently, but they teach us one central truth, that you are king, you are Lord, the Lord who has loved us and redeemed us. And so as we uh, continue in this series through Second Samuel, may that become very apparent to us in today's passage. Uh, teach us, encourage us, shape our hearts and our minds to be people who love you and who are marked by your spirit. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
there's a movement uh, that started in the UK back in 2004, which has now apparently reached uh, 21 countries, and it's called Messy Church. Messy Church advertises itself as a form of church for uh, children and adults who don't already belong to a church and involves, as they uh, describe themselves, uh, involves creativity, celebration, and hospitality. The messy label uh, refers to the creative time during the gatherings when attendees explore the biblical theme through, and I quote, getting messy. Now, I have to confess that sounds extremely stressful to me. I realize that has as much to do with my personality as my lack of sanctification, but I'm just not a big fan of that kind of mess. Tara will tell you she only has to send me a picture of craft time at Art Splash or Story Keepers with the pictures of beads and paper and glue and string and scissors all lying around for me just to start developing some form of rash. And it might be a slight exaggeration, but it's not much. I'm simply grateful that God has gifted people like Tara and many of you uh, to flourish in the midst of such mess so that others like myself don't have to. But while, while not all of us have to handle the creative messiness of a messy church or a children's ministry and the like, we do have to know how to negotiate God's messy kingdom. And that's what's addressed in our passage today. It's a long passage of which Jeremy just read the beginning and the end. Hopefully uh, many of you heeded the invitation in Friday's email to read all the way from chapter 2 verse 1 through to the first few verses of chapter 5. Uh, the passage is bookended, as we just heard, by David being anointed as king over Judah at the beginning of chapter 2, and then finally by all of Israel at the start of chapter 5. But in between those two bookends, anyone who has read these chapters has to admit it gets very, very messy. There's intrigue, there's deception, there are murders. It's very, very messy indeed not unlike today. So the question is, how does one live in the context of a messy kingdom? And here's what I'm going to suggest the answer to that question is, that in the midst of a messy kingdom, we ask, and then we wait on God's will, in God's way, in God's time. I'm going to think about this in three parts today. Three imperatives do ask. Number two, don't take shortcuts Number three, do let God be God. That in the midst of a messy kingdom, we ask and we wait on God's will in God's way, in God's time. First then, we do ask. Chapter two, verse one. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. Now, just to bring us up to speed, here's a quick summary of what has happened up to this point. As we saw last week, uh, King Saul has died. We saw that in chapter 1 last week. Uh, killing himself in the midst of a losing battle to the Philistines. David receives word from a rather self-interested Amalekite about the death of Saul, the death of Saul's son, Jonathan. With that sends uh, David into mourning and fasting and weeping. Let me just remind you of how astounding it is uh, that David lamented this scene. He was lamenting the death of a man who had been pursuing him for 15 years in order to try to kill him. And the reason David, uh, that 
for this lament was that there was something more important to David than what Saul had done to David. It was what God had done for Saul. As we saw last week, Saul was the Lord's anointed king, and only God could appoint such a king, only God could dispose of such a king. David understood he did not have the right to uh, seek Saul's demise or his death. But now God has removed Saul from the kingship. You've been reading uh, First Chronicles this week, which has been one of the daily prayer project readings uh, through this week. Then perhaps you read First Chronicles 10 and saw a parallel there to our own passage, because in First Chronicles 10, we read explicitly why Saul died. First Chronicles 10, 13 to 14, Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. God had laid out very clearly that if Israel was to have a king, which was something that Israel had requested so that they could be like all their neighboring pagan nations, well, God said, well, unlike the other nations, your king, Israel's king, needs to follow me. Saul was the first king in this new arrangement, but he failed to fulfill the condition of following the Lord, and so the Lord had rejected him as king. But at the, very, at the very same time, everybody knew that what Saul's death meant in, in terms of the future kingship was that David now was to be the new king. Everybody knew that was to be the case. Prophet Samuel had anointed David as the next king all the way back in 1 Samuel 16. It's then mentioned in chapter 20, 1 Samuel, chapter 23, chapter 25, that Jonathan knows, Saul knows, a woman called Abigail knows. They all know that David's to be the next king. Everybody knows. And yet here, David's first act is to ask God, what's the next step? There's a subtle irony in David's inquiry here. Saul's name actually meant, you asked for it a clue to the fact that he had been the one asked for by the people. But now David begins his movement towards the throne with a very different asking. He asks the Lord humbly what it is he should do next. Now, some of us may read that and think to ourselves, you know, really, David? I mean, you know what to do. This isn't a day for prayer. This is a day for action. And it certainly would have been very clear, humanly speaking, what he should do, because David knows he can't stay where he was. David had been based in the city of Ziglag uh, while operating undercover in the land of the Philistines. The Amalekites had uh, burned and destroyed that city, had, uh, had uh, captured the women and the children. David and his army had pursued the Amalekites. They had defeated them. They'd rescued the women and the children. But they, that didn't undo the fact that Ziglag now was ruined and was uninhabitable. David needs to get out of there. Then news comes that Saul is dead. There's an empty throne, and he knows he's to be the next king. So you think it's a no-brainer, and yet still David comes to God to pray to ask what he should do. Why? Because David was a man of prayer. David had already set the pattern of seeking God's will in God's way, in God's time, in every situation. He knows he's totally dependent on God, and he wants to do what will please God. So he prays. Listen to how John Calvin explains this. He says, even though David clearly knew that God had constituted him as king, 
and that Saul had trespassed, even though the time was ripe for him to enjoy the crown, nevertheless, he asked God to tell him what he should do. Why? Because although he was on the way, he still knew that he could err seriously if God did not guide him. Let us learn through all of life to go to the Lord, especially when we are facing an important decision, I might add, any decision. Let us find out what is to be done, and let us not be so self-assured that we fail to pray to God to show us what is useful and expedient. One of the reasons the story of David should interest all of us, whether we would consider ourselves uh, uh, believers or seekers or even skeptics, is because this story illuminates the most important story in the history of the world, namely the story of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that again later in the message. But for now, I want to highlight how what David does here in his asking is what Jesus teaches all of his followers to do. Look with me at Luke chapter 11, 9 to 10. This is Jesus speaking. He says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Every time I read these verses, I'm struck by the astonishingly open-ended nature to this promise that Jesus makes about our prayers. If I'm honest, this is where many of us preachers feel like we need to help Jesus out a little bit, where we almost feel like we need to say, well, yeah, I know Jesus says that, but he didn't really mean it the way it came out. So we'll point out how these words can be pulled out of context. You know, right before this, Jesus has just been teaching the Lord's Prayer with specific parameters. We're to come to God as Father. That is, we're in relationship with Him. We're to ask God's name to be honored. We're to seek the coming of God's kingdom. We're to pray for our daily provision, forgiveness of sin, deliverance from the evil one. We might even point out the related warning by Jesus' brother James, who wrote James 4, that we may, when we ask, we may not receive because we've asked with the wrong motives. And in light of that, we'll tell, preachers will tell anyone who will listen, Jesus isn't preaching some health and wealth gospel here. He's not announcing that if you really want that jet black Tesla, you just have to ask God for it. What he says has to be understood in context. And here's the thing, all those caveats are true. They absolutely are. But the way that Jesus makes this promise here is such that parameters and cautions and context cannot be what was most uppermost in Jesus' mind at that point. Those of us who who preach have to be very careful that we don't dilute Jesus' words here so much that we gut them out of their meaning. Jesus surely knew what he was doing when he makes such unconditional promises here. Six times in six different ways, Jesus almost begs us to pray and promises that simple asking receives and simple seeking finds and simple knocking opens. And as if that weren't enough, Jesus doesn't just say it once. He then goes through the promises uh, right after these verses three more times as if to say, this really is the way it works. It really is. The way to receive from the Father is ask him just like David. That brings us to then our second point, which is don't take shortcuts. After David asks if he should go up to one of the towns of Judah, God tells him yes. David asks which one. God tells him Hebron. It would be difficult to overstate the significance of where David is told to go at this point, because Hebron 
was the city of Abraham, was where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah were all buried. It was where Israel's life in the land promised to them by God had begun. In other words, David's move to Hebron connected him with the promises that God had made to Abraham to bring blessing to all the nations, to all the peoples of the earth. David's going up to Hebron anticipates the fact that in the very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, Jesus will be introduced not only as the son of David, but also as the son of Abraham. And so here in Abraham's city, Hebron, the men of Judah gather to anoint David king over the house of Judah. Now remember, David's been waiting since 1 Samuel 16 for this moment of anointing, of coronation. Finally, finally it's here. Well, sort of here. Because at this stage, he's only being crowned by one tribe. There are 11 others that haven't yet crowned David as king. And it's actually going to be seven and a half years before that coronation happens at the beginning of chapter 5. And it's during those seven and a half years that we see the incredible messiness of God's kingdom play out in some kind of ancient Near Eastern version of Game of Thrones as various secondary figures take over the story. So moving to the center stage in these chapters are two men, one called Joab, one called Abner. Together these two make so much noise and their respective arrogance and pride so hogs the show that the story of David is, if not pushed off the page, at least relegated to the footnotes. Abner is, is from Saul's court in the north, i.e. the 11 tribes that haven't yet crowned David. Joab's from David's court in the south, i.e. in Judah. And as each of these men assert themselves, they each become military commanders. Abner's the commander of Saul's army. Joab's the commander of David's army. Abner's the consummate opportunist. He sees himself as kingmaker, and so he attaches himself to Ishbosheth, the one remaining son of Saul, who hasn't even been mentioned as part of Saul's family up to this point, and Saul never suggested or identified Ishbosheth as a possible successor to the throne, but Abner makes Ishbosheth into king in order to serve his own purposes. And then Joab, on the other, on the other hand, is the prototypical strongman in the story. He kills first and thinks about it later. And someone doesn't agree with him, the only solution Joab can see is just to get rid of the person. Well, as you track the narrative of these two men from chapters two to four, it's really grim. And the story kind of is set, the, the scene is set with the story beginning in chapter two, verse 12, uh, where, where Abner and Joab meet at the pool of Gibeon, each with their respective armies. Abner positions himself on one side of the pool, Joab on the other, and they then each put forward a team of 12 men to engage in a contest of arms. And to begin with, this just has the appearance of a Saturday afternoon sporting event, uh, which spectators would yell and cheer on their side to victory. So on the signal, the two teams go at it. But instead of playing a game in which one team wins and the other loses, this game gets totally out of hand the players go berserk and they end up killing each other, whereupon the two armies of spectators pour out of the stands onto the field into an orgy of pursuit and murder. What starts out as a game turns into a riot 
and ends in a massacre. So at the end of the day, the final score, the body count was Israel 360, Judah 20. As the story goes on, things only deteriorate. There's civil war now between the house of Saul and the house of David. Abner's grabbing more power in the house of Saul, but then he ends up working out some kind of diplomatic means to turn Saul's kingdom uh, over to David. Joab is furious with David that he's welcomed Abner into the fold in peace. Abner, after all, was the one who had killed Joab's brother Asael. Unbeknownst to David, Joab then seeks personal vengeance, stabs Abner in the stomach. When Ishbosheth hears that Abner is dead, we're told he gives up. All Israel is terrified. And then, just to put a capital M on the word messy, we encounter these two fraternal thugs who belong to Saul and Ishbosheth's tribe, and they decide it's time to take things into their own hands in order to try to win favor with David. What do they do? They go to Ishbosheth's house during siesta time while Ishbosheth is asleep and they stab him in the stomach. If you read chapter four, five to seven, you'll notice the narrator employs a little bit of repetition there, which I think is deliberate and intended to communicate something of a mocking sneer. In other words, to say, uh, Rechab and Bahana, these two men, well, they're so macho, they can kill a guy in his sleep. Pretty impressive, huh? They came, he slept, they stabbed. They then bring Eshbosheth's head to David, as proof of their devotion to David, since they didn't have smartphones back there to take a picture and prove someone was dead, the next best thing was to bring the head. Thank God for our smartphones today. David's reaction to these two murders is basically the same as to the Amalekite last week. In this case, he accuses them of being wicked, killing a righteous man in his own bed, and has the two put to death. All right. Well, I wonder what your reaction is when you come across passages like this in your daily Bible reading. I mean, it's possible that the teenagers in our family are like, well, this actually is pretty cool, you know? <laughs> Poolside massacres, multiple stomach stabbings. But many of us probably wonder what this is doing in our Bibles. We don't want to read about jerks like Joab and Abner and Rechab and Bahana. You say, I get enough of that on my internet news feed. I, I want good stories. Good news, thank you very much. Give me the David story and the Jesus story. Maybe the Bible needs a new editor or something. So why does the Bible have stuff like this? Why are the Abners and the Joabs allowed to take up literally chapters of the Bible? And I think the answer to it is this, that this is the context and the company in which God chooses to work out our salvation. It's the messy kingdom. We find other Abners and other Joabs in other places in the Bible, and dare I say it, we still see them today. Joab and Abner weren't by common definition enemies. Both of them actually would have probably claimed to be on David's side, but it's very clear that they're not interested in, being, uh, fun, in, in God's work in and through David. No, both of them are simply interested in how David can further their work, their careers, their resumes, their agendas. So that all their religion is just a front to their self-interest. And the clue to that proclivity in their lives is their willingness to take shortcuts. And that's where I think this part of the story relates to us. Because we can just be like Abner and Joab if we're inclined to take shortcuts to get what we want or to take matters into our own hands when we don't like the rules, or we think that the end justifies the mean when, means when to do so 
ends up meaning a failure to trust God or to obey God or to love God or to love our neighbor. Because that's the heart of the problem here. It's to think that God could do with our help at times to speed things along, to force the issue when things aren't moving in the way we want them to. And every single one of us does this. In fact, every sin that we commit is at root the false belief that God's will in God's way in God's time isn't quite the right way, so I'm going to enact my will in my way in my time. We declare ourselves little gods, applying rules or permissions to ourselves that don't apply to other people. Eugene Peterson describes Abner and Joab as boneheads. That might seem a little harsh to some of us, but it's an appropriate word for any of us who fail to trust God's will in God's way, in God's time. Don't take shortcuts. Instead, thirdly and lastly, do let God be God. As I mentioned earlier, David's almost relegated to the footnotes in these chapters by way of the machinations of of Abner, Joab, Rechab, Bahana. But when he does appear, he's, he's a contrast to these boneheads because in each appearance, we see David letting God be God and waiting on his will and his way in his time. The fact that, that David's first stop in Hebron is in Hebron is perhaps indicative of, of how God is going to sovereignly oversee David's reign as king. Kingdom of God for this, has for this moment tucked itself into the hills of Judah because as Jesus taught himself, the kingdom of God is, well, is like a mustard seed. It so often starts in very small ways. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah, about 500 years after David, would encourage us not to despise the day of small things. And I think that's worth reminding ourselves of fairly frequently. Here we are, a small church on a side street in a small town. Granted, a few years ago, Kennett Square was uh, voted the fourth coolest town in a small town in America. We do punch above our weight in so many ways. But if we're honest, some of us are tempted all the time to be looking elsewhere to try to find where God is really at work, to see where the kingdom of God is really coming as we pray for it in the Lord's Prayer each week. But may the Lord forgive us for such a lack of faith. Because the kingdom of God is seated in the Hebrons of this world. There we say it, in the Kennet squares of this world. Now, for in some ways, for David, that seed of this kingdom, as we said earlier, would seem to lie dormant for seven and a half years. Because that's how long it would be until David becomes what God had promised, the king over all of Israel. Seven and a half years he has to wait. I quoted this line before from the Scottish minister, Morris Roberts. He says, God is pleased to work his purposes out often, if not always, in a sort of slow motion. We don't like that, do we? We don't like it at all. But if we are honest, we know it's true because we've all seen it in our own lives. God, more often than not, moves slower than we wish he would. And yet again, I think we have to say that's part of his training and his discipling of us as his children, as we saw about a month ago in Hebrews 12. So what's the appropriate response by a Christian to God's slow motion? It's to 
Let God be God. It's to wait on him. Waiting on him means integrity, not cutting corners, not taking matters into our own hands, not thinking the end justifies the means, but rather trusting in God's will, in God's way, in God's time. This waiting on God manifested itself in a number of ways in David's seven and a half years described in these chapters. So, for example, early in chapter two, see in the passage that Jeremy read for us, David extends an olive branch to the men of Jabesh Gilead, men who had followed Saul, indeed men who had risked their lives to rescue the decapitated corpses of Saul and his sons in order to give them a proper burial. David here is continuing to show love and loyalty to Saul, his predecessor, even though he's now dead, in contrast to Saul's hatred of David. But part of the messiness of the kingdom is seen in the the apparent non-responsiveness of the men of Jabesh Gilead. While the people of Judah immediately recognize David as king, these men of Jabesh Gilead appear to want to register as independents and refrain from being early adopters. And the tragedy of, tragedy of that is that if they'd acknowledged David as king, it's likely they would have eliminated the bloodshed that occurs in chapters 3 and 4 as a result of the ensuing war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David's waiting on the Lord is seen also in his response to the failure of others to wait on the Lord. So when Abner is murdered by Joab, remember Joab is David's own nephew, David grieved and lamented the death. David's the one who leads the mourners behind the hearse as it takes Abner to his final resting place in Hebron. For David, it had to be God's will and God's way in God's time. When Ishbosheth, in a sense his rival, is killed and decapitated by Rechab and Bahana, supposedly as an act of loyalty to David, David's horrified, referring to the act as an act of wickedness, putting the perpetrators to death for their deeds. And then David honors Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, by having his head buried in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. And granted, all of these responses were somewhat politically motivated. David needed those who were supportive of the house of Saul to know that they could now trust David and submit to his kingship. But David's political goals were never, never came at the expense of his desire to let God be God, to wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord, meaning doing things the Lord's way. No shortcuts, no taking things into our own hands, and so with us. One good way, I think, to work out, okay, well, what does it mean to wait on the Lord is simply to apply Jesus' great commandments. That in every situation, we might say, what would it look like in this situation for me to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love my neighbor as myself? If we're obedient to those two commands, it keeps us on the path of trusting God's will in God's way, in God's time. David, of course, wouldn't get this right every time in his life, but when he did, he points us forward to the greater David, to the son of David, Jesus Christ, who knew exactly what it meant to trust his father's will in the father's way in the father's time. So you may remember, right after his anointing, at his baptism, Jesus is thrust into the desert by the Spirit, where he's tempted by the devil for 40 days. And the temptation really boiled down to this. The devil says, Jesus, I've got a shortcut for you. I can give you the crown without the cross. And Jesus says, no, it's going to be God's will and God's way and God's time. 
night before his crucifixion, Jesus is sought out by the Roman soldiers, the religious leaders. One of the disciples, Peter, remember, draws his sword, cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. It's going to be God's will and God's way and God's time. Right before that incident, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane where the Father would give him this graphic preview of all the suffering he would face on the cross as he would pay the penalty for all of our sins, all of our past shortcuts, taking things into our own hands, justifying the means by the end. Jesus says to the Father, does it have to be this way, Father? In other words, is there another way that I can save men and women, boys and girls? And Jesus knew what the answer was. This was the only way. This was God's will and God's way in God's time. And because he submitted to that, that will, that way, and that timing through his death and resurrection and ascension, as the hymn writer says, we now have the benefit and the beauty and the glory of being ransomed and healed and restored and forgiven. Kingdom is messy. It's really messy, much messier than we wish. But through it all, God is working out his perfect purposes, his will, his way, his time. So the question is, will we be like David, like Jesus, and trust God with that? Will you trust God with that this week? Our Theology on Tap men's group this week was discussing chapter 14 of Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, that I know many of you have been reading. Chapter 14 is about God as the Father of mercies. And at the end of the chapter, Ortland quotes the Puritan John Flavel, who wrote this, Remember that this God in whose hand are all creatures is your Father and is much more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself. Why should we ask God for all things in all situations, refusing to cut corners, letting God be God, waiting on him, Flavel says, because your greatest treatment, your gentlest treatment of yourself is less gentle than the way your heavenly father handles you. His tenderness towards you outstrips what you're even capable of toward yourself. So in all the messiness of life, Let's trust God's will in God's way, in God's time. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a great God you are, what a loving God you are, what a tender God you are, what a merciful God you are. And it's so tempting to think that we should take things into our own hands, that we should cut corners because we even try to justify this by thinking that we're helping you out, and yet you have made it clear how you want us to live. You want your people to be people of the utmost integrity, loving you with heart, soul, strength, and mind, loving our neighbors as ourselves, putting all our trust in you. Help us to do that, we pray, Lord, in every facet of our lives so that we might bring glory to your name, praise and honor to Jesus, and we might live in step with the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.